0: Amen. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3. And if you sat down on the back of the the bulletin, there's some sermon notes. And this morning, they'll be pretty helpful. So you want to try and grab one of those or look on to somebody who's next to you. And I'm really excited to have all the kids in the service today because this gives me an excuse to speak specifically and directly uh, to my children. So my two girls are over there. They're, they're six and five. So I actually want to speak specifically to all you females, all you young ladies who are in between the age of about five and 12. So all of you look up here. Let me see your eyes. Young ladies in between five and 12. I want to give you a life principle That will help you, and I'm going to give you this on behalf of not only myself, but your father as well, your father. I'm going to give you a life principle that's going to help you navigate the next 20 years of your life. So uh, like in 20 years, when our girls, uh, when we start the discussion about dating and things like that, (laughs) here's a life principle that's going to help you until then, and it's boys ruin everything. So just, if you don't remember anything else, the one thing I want you to remember from this morning is boys ruin everything. Actually, girls, say it with me. Boys ruin everything. Very good. And you, you know this is true. So all of you little girls who have, like, little brothers, raise your hand. Like, those of you who have little brothers, you know how they ruin everything. Um, like, you can have the most sophisticated sweet tea party set up, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this miniature monster will just descend, and he'll, like, hijack the knife and start stabbing you with it. He'll turn the spoon into a machine gun, and it's like... And then the tea party just explodes into nothingness. Or you can have this this beautiful princess parade all lined up and in order, and out of nowhere comes like this bulldozer. And this bulldozer just plows the princesses over, and <laughs> boys ruin everything. And one of the reasons why they, they ruin things is because often they don't understand the characters of the story, and they don't understand the plot. Um... Out of nowhere, things will start to crash and blow up and and uh, you 'll be wanting to play a game with Anna and Elsa, and out of nowhere, like Chewbacca will descend, and you 'll say no that 's not the right character he 's not in this story or uh, you know you 'll be playing this wonderful game of like kitchen and serving up food, and then they 'll try and steal all the food and feed it to your stuffed animals and that 's just not the plot and so in any kind of in any situation, whether you're 5, 25, 55, 95, in any situation, if you don't get the characters or the plot right, things can just get frustrating. And so it can be like, like kids, you know, as you're going back to school and you kind of connect with people and maybe you meet new people. And one of the exciting things is when you meet someone who loves the things you love and maybe someone sees that you love Harry Potter and they say, oh, you... You love Harry Potter. I do too. What is so cool when he destroys the ring? You might think, wait, that's, that's not actually that story. That's not that plot. Or I love Frozen. I never thought she would fall in love with the beast. And you even think, well, no, that's not, that's not that story. But it's not just kids who can get the plot wrong or the characters wrong. I mean, think about it. Adults, we can do it too. So, for example, like if any of your dads go to a football game and they decide that uh, they're going to be the starting quarterback for the Bucks, and they're going to run out on the field and that that's their character, some really bad things are going to happen to your father, <laughs> both legally and physically. <laughs> they're going to get hurt. It's not going to go well for them. Or if your mom goes to a show at the Dr. Carr Phillips Center and she thinks she's actually the lead singer who should be on stage and she hops up there and just starts singing. Uh, It's not going to go well uh, for for her. And uh, one of the struggles we actually all have is understanding and discerning what we're, we're in this story. We're living in this world, and what are the key characters, and what's the plot? Like, what's the plot of this story? What are the key characters? And if you live your life in such a way where you miscast the key characters, and you misunderstand the the reality of the plot, at best, you're going to be frustrated, but at worst, you're going to bring some destruction. So at best, your life will be filled with frustration. At worst, it's going to be filled with destruction. And so what we're going to look at here this morning is how we can get clear on what our actual role is in this story we call life and what actually the plot is in this story we call life. Because if you think about it, if you go through life and you, you misconstrue or misunderstand the plot, like if you think the plot... Of life is all about how you can maximize your happiness, when difficulty and suffering comes, it's going to crush you. Like if you think the plot of life is all about how I can win, and I win bigly at life, that's the plot of life. When you fail, it's going to crush you. Or if you think the plot of life is all about how you can be on top, and you can be at the head of your class, or you can achieve and succeed, when disappointments come, they'll crush you. When failures come, they'll crush you. And so one of the things we're looking at, Ephesians chapter 3, because Paul gives this remarkable uh, teaching on how you can go through life and experience difficulty, experience suffering, experience trials and tribulations, and you can maintain your joy in spite of any situation. And one of the things he's going to tell us is one of the keys to that is understanding the right characters in the plot, understanding the story, And so we're going to look at Ephesians, focus on verse 7 through 13, but really key in on these two ideas are what is the plan and then what is the purpose? What is God's plan and what is his purpose? Because one of the central t- teachings of the Bible is that there is a story we're all in, and it's a story about how this is God's good world, it's ruined by sin, it's redeemed by the Son, and it's being recreated by the Holy Spirit. And we're in this story, and we have a role and a part to play in this redemption of all things, but understanding the plot and understanding the characters are essential for us living well. So let's pick up in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 3. It says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gifts of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has revealed, realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, which is for your glory. So what I want you to notice is you notice those two things where in verse... In verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, where Paul says, my calling in life is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan. There's this plan that God has as he's unfolding and executing history. He has a plan, and part of my calling in life is to bring to light so you can understand it, you can see it, and you can locate yourself in it. He said, part of this plan is to demonstrate to the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm, God's wisdom. So you'll look and you'll marvel the unspeakable riches of his plan. So what I want to do really is just spend about 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes, just having us just meditate and think about the beauty and the glory of God's plan. And we're going to do it in a couple of different ways. You can look on your sheet because what I really want to, and I, I don't know, this, this could be a terrible idea, so you can tell me afterwards. But what I wanted to try and do, so here's, I'll tell you what I'm trying to do, and then you can do some of the mental work to help me uh, make it happen. So what I would like to do is to sketch the plan, God's plan from uh, creation to right now, And then the way we want to sketch that is look at the the plot line of the Old Testament is that God is a God who makes promises. He is a promise maker. The plot line of the New Testament is that Jesus is the promise keeper. He's the one who keeps all of these promises. And then the plot line of our life is that we are promise needers. We need these promises. We have to live off them. We are the ones who actually receive them. So, the story that we want to, the plot we want to trace is that uh, God makes promises, Jesus fulfills them, and we receive them. And the way I want to actually structure it is go through the Old Testament and look at six key promises that God makes, six key promises that Jesus fulfills, and six key promises that we need. And then they're all the same. So, you can see on your your list, the kind of one, two, three, and then the six major major promises. So we're thinking about God's plan for redemption. And even as I think about it, it's really important before we even talk about what that plan is, to remember that this plan of God is not, like the, the history of redemption is not God's plan B. It's not that things were spiraling out of his control and this is a backup plan. So I was thinking about this. I had those... Uh, words of the great American philosopher Mike Tyson (laughs) ringing in the back of my mind where Mike Tyson says everybody has a plan until you punch them in the mouth and then the plan goes out the window and sometimes we can read and think "Right, God had this plan and then like the fall he got punched in the mouth and he had to adjust and then uh, with the law he delivered the law and maybe my people can obey that and that was like a punch in the mouth and he had to adjust that's not how any of these things are he had a plan. His plans, in essence, are not like our plans. So God's, God's not like the government, where he's responding to unforeseen circumstances and making adjustments to unintended consequences. God's not like the government. God's not like scientists who are just experimenting with what works. He's not like entrepreneurs who just try and fail fast, who succeed by finding new opportunities and responding uh, to new needs. He's not like that. Actually, what we're going to look at for NC Youth this week is God, not only is He not like the government, scientists, entrepreneurs, God is not like cottage cheese. And if you want to know what that means, you'll have to come Wednesday night. So He's not like cottage cheese either. But God's plans are very different from our plans. So, like when I say, you know, I'll meet you for breakfast, that means I'll meet you for breakfast as long as, like, I'm still alive, I have transportation the restaurant is still open, that they actually serve breakfast. There's all of these contingencies that are dependent upon us accomplishing that plan. But God's not like that. Our plans are contingent. They, uh, they depend on how events unfold and whether or not we actually have the ability to bring them out. And if you think about it, there's so many things in life that are just beyond your control. They're outside of your control. But one of the things we say Is we say God is sovereign, and what we mean by that is He fulfills His own plans in His own time, with His own power, and they can't be stopped. He knows exactly what He's doing at every single point. So as we think about these these plans, one thing we can rest because one thing Paul wants to do is He wants to turn your attention away from yourself towards His plan that He's worked through the ages, and is to give you a sense of security and a sense of rest that I don't have to orchestrate this thing. And so we can let that stabilize us. So let's look at the first thing. God is the promise maker. And that really is the overarching story of the Old Testament. God is the one who is making promises. He's the promise maker. And let's look at some of these promises that he makes. So we're just going to kind of walk through the story of the Old Testament, looking at these promises. And one of the things you'll notice, uh, so if you're... um, biblically theologically inclined you'll notice each one of these major promises connects to one of the major covenants in the old testament so god's covenant with creation and his promise to send a savior then his covenant with abraham then israel at sinai then david and then the new covenant through the promises uh, prophets so let's look first at the promise uh, that begins in Genesis The very beginning And the very first promise Is that in his presence is life And that life is good So we'll start at the beginning Francis Schaefer said The beautiful thing about the Bible Is it starts in the beginning It starts at the very beginning And then it takes you all the way Till the ending So start at the beginning And the first promise And this is wrapped up In the nature of Genesis 1-3 through 3, That in his presence is life And that life is good This is the location And the place where you find life, and it's in his presence. And it's worth thinking about, all right, what was the purpose of creation? Because you really don't know how to evaluate or judge something unless you understand its purpose. So why were we created? What's the purpose besi- behind us? You know, what are people for? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the psalm tells us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The heavens declare the glory of God. And as a shorter catechism says, first question: What's the chief end of man? Why are we created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? So we were originally made to glorify Him, to enter into His presence and enjoy life in His presence. That's our design. And you can only evaluate something um, according to its design. Like you might ask me, like, "Is this a good watch?" And I might say, "No, this is a terrible watch." I take it and I start hammering nails with it, and it just breaks. It's no good. Well, that would be a ridiculous thing to say and do because it wasn't designed for that. You judge its quality based on is it accomplishing what it was designed for. And the way you tell whether or not you're living a good life is are you living according to your design? What were you designed for and to do? And the very first promise is that in his presence is life. And that life is Good. But there in the very beginning, we see evil entering in, and we don't really know why. We don't know how. We don't know where it comes from, really, but it comes in. And then the second major promise is that he's going to destroy all evil and rid the earth of sin's curse. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, he comes and the Lord confronts them. And it's interesting because he then says, "Cursed are you. He puts curse, he curses the serpent, he curses the ground. And when he's doing that, what he's actually doing is assigning the consequences of the devastation, of the destruction. Because the idea is in his presence is life. Obedience brings life, but disobedience brings death. Disobedience is not the path to life, it's the path to destruction and death. And have you ever noticed how when he comes in, for Adam, he doesn't curse Adam, he curses the ground. Have you ever thought how odd that is? See, say, why? I mean, what did the ground do? It was just there. It was kind of like holding him up. He was just standing on it. Why does he curse the ground? Because one of the things he's given us a hint that the, the curse is now diverted away from where it belongs, and it's being put on something else, and there's a hint of what our actual hope is going to be. So in the nature of this promise is uh, how is God going to do this? How is he going to destroy evil and rid the earth of sin's curse? It's saying there's going to be one that's going to come who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that now is central to the whole plot line, the whole story, is that now there's these two seeds in Genesis 3, and they're going to do battle, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And somebody is going to come from the woman who's finally going to crush the serpent and end the world of the evil, and end the curse. But even right here, you can see God's grace saves them from the immediate consequences of judgment. But what's so sad is now what starts to happen is you see the devastating effects come into sin. And you notice if you read through the first um, of all of Genesis, is it starts coming in as it starts to break families. The family is ground zero from where, where sin begins to, to break us. In Genesis chapter 4, there's a battle between two brothers, and one brother kills another. Not, another example. Boys ruin everything. But the promise is there's going to be an offspring born of a woman who's going to come as our champion. But now there's this, this atmosphere of perpetual conflict with evil from generation to generation. And they begin to wait. Someone has to come to end this and restore these families. And then it moves on uh, to number three. It moves on in Genesis chapter 12, because that first family was torn apart and then violence increased. Every thought becomes, says in Genesis chapter 9, becomes evil only and totally. But then in Genesis chapter 12, God uh, calls Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I will bless you, and then you will be a blessing. And through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham was, I mean, Abraham was living in complete darkness. He was a moon worshiper from Ur, and then he wasn't seeking God in any way. And then God comes to him takes him, and then delivers a promise to him that through him and his family, he is going to mediate blessings to all the families on the earth. And he's going to begin to restore what has been broken. And so that's the third promise, that he's going to bless people from every nation. And it's going to happen through this one family. And then they grow and develop, and then we move into Exodus. Because one of the, the troubles is that uh, what sin causes is it doesn't just cause devastation and destruction, it causes slavery, and it causes bondage. So one of the questions now is how, if he's going to bless the earth through this family, how can the slavery be ended? How can they be rescued? And so moving into looking number four, that he's going to rescue us. That's the next major promise in the Old Testament, that he's going to rescue us through sacrifice, and we'll live through obedience. So God was going to judge the Egyptians for oppressing his people. And before he's going to send the judgment, he's going to give them a command and he's going to give them a promise. And each family was to slaughter a lamb and take the blood and paint it on the door frames to indicate that death had already come to that household. And in Exodus chapter 12, God says, when I see the blood of the lamb, I'm going to pass over. And so on the night of the Passover, It's God's sacrifice of the lamb that then brings the people out of slavery and delivers them from his judgment. And then after this, God makes a covenant with them and says, I will walk among you and be your God. I will be your God. You will be my people. And the dynamic of Exodus is that this, the blood of the lamb, that the sacrifice paves a way to deliver them. But then the whole point of deliverance is that so they enter into his presence That's why the whole second half of the book of Exodus is all about uh, tabernacle decorations and functions, how you enter into the presence of the Lord. And then he gives them commands because we need both. We need sacrifice to, in essence, clean us, but then we need commands to direct us and teach us. See, we need the commands before God calls his people because he calls us to walk in his ways. And if we're going to bear his name, we have to reflect his character. But it's not enough. We need more than commands. We need the sacrifices as well. So, what we see here is that uh, God's people have to be delivered from the judgment by the blood of the Lamb. And his promise is that now he's going to rescue sinners to himself, but that rescue has to happen through sacrifice. So, as the law teaches how to live, sacrifice will tell us how we can be forgiven. And then they they live under the light of that. But even in the light of that, the anthem then becomes: uh, "There was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes." So the question is: Now God gives these commands under which people can thrive, but they're not thriving. They're not obeying. What are they going to do? say so they God God was their king but they weren't satisfied and then coming in first and second Samuel God then gives the promise that he's going to send an offspring he's going to send a king second Samuel 7 I will raise up from you David one to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom and he is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever And so God then promises that all of his people, if they're really going to thrive, they have to live under the shadow of his king's royal rule. So what you're beginning to see is you put all of these pieces in place, you travel through the Old Testament and you can begin to make, uh, understand, all right, what's the plot and who are the main characters? You see the plot is that God's building kind of this painting, this picture of this plan and this person who's going to deliver on all of these promises, So God promises to give life to those people, and that life reflects his glory. He promises to destroy evil and rid the world of its curse. He promises to bless people from all nations and to reconcile sinners to himself through sacrifice. And there's one who has to come who's going to fulfill all of these promises. And He's going to be born of a woman. He's going to be born in Abraham's family. He's going to be a son of David. God will be his father, and he will be God's son. And God will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. But what we see here is we ask, all right, under this, what is the actual, the promise? The promise is that underneath the, the rule of this king, his people can actually thrive. That's how they'll experience life. But the sad thing is you read the rest of the Old Testament, no one thrives under the reign of the kings. God's people refuse to heed his word They refuse to walk in his ways, and so he sends all of the prophets to call them back to obedience and to call them to life, but they refuse to listen, and they don't repent. And the word of God can't be ignored, and we see that that tension that runs that God sends these promises to give life, but disobedience always brings death. So how do you live in the light of those two tensions? The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, but he can in no way clear the guilty. And you have that thread running through the whole Old Testament. So what is he going to do? Disobedience brings death, but he's promised to be the giver of life. And then what you find the whole end of the Old Testament is the people collectively experience, in essence, the ultimate death as they are sent into exile. And then in the prophets come, and they warn them, and they tell them it's coming, but then they also strike this note of hope that this, in essence, death is not going to be the final word. There's going to be something else that follows. So Jeremiah tells the people in Jeremiah 29, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, when the exile's over, when you experience this collective death, I will come to you, and I will fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you hope and a future. They're plans to prosper you. But it's not plans to prosper you in your own little um, personal, economic, consumeristic way. It's a plan to draw you into the grand story of what I'm doing to redeem and renew all things. And to bring life out of death. So even here in the, in the Old Testament, it ends in the most severe discipline. Even in that context, God is advancing his plans and his purpose for his people. Because one of the things you'll see, and it's really important, is that God, God will receive us in our sins, but he won't leave us in our sins. So God will accept you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He won't let you stay there. So he sends his promise, and the promise is that all of his people one day... They'll, they'll rise from death to life. They'll be regenerated and renewed. And that when his redeeming work in your life is complete, you will love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You will love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll be drawn into this worldwide community of his new family that are experiencing his grace and transformation. But the Old Testament is all about the story that disobedience brings death. His promises bring life. How can they be reconciled? One of the last prophets in the Old Testament is Ezekiel. And one of the last things you see in Ezekiel 37 is the Valley of Dry Bones. And God tells him, he says, this is the house of Israel. Can they live? And Ezekiel says, only you know, Lord. And he says, the sovereign Lord says to my people, I'm going to open up your grave. And I'm going to bring new life out of them. I'm going to bring you back. Into the land of the living. So, the final great promise is that he's going to bring new life out of the grave. And then, as we shift to the New Testament, what's amazing about the story is that then Jesus becomes the one who is the keeper of all of these promises. So, look at them and say, All these promises, you can see how God gives them. But then think about how Jesus keeps them and fulfills them. Number one, in his presence is life, and that life is good. And see, Jesus in John 1, we see that he has come. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and it was God. And the word was made flesh, and it has tabernacled among us. Now the very presence of the living Lord is with us, and he comes. His presence comes, and when his presence comes, he brings life. That's why he says, I am the bread of life, the water of life. I am all of these things that when I come, I bring life. And then the second, how does he destroy the works of evil and the curse? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He actually destroys evil by fully bearing it and becoming the curse. And is that he's going to bless people from every Tribe and nation, and he calls to himself this vast company of the redeemed. And then he rescues us through sacrifice, but it's actually his sacrifice that's what grants us access to the Father. So that's why when he died and the curtain of the temple was split open because now access has been granted and it's through his sacrifice we can come. That's why Paul is exalting in Ephesians chapter 2 that this dividing wall that kept us separated has been torn down. He is the one who through his sacrifice rescues us and then it's his gracious rule under which we can thrive. It's his commands that if we hear and heed we find life. I mean, his commands are, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. It's underneath that shadow that we can find rest. And of course, how does he bring new life out of the grave? It's by God brought his life out of the grave, and he conquered death. And so Jesus actually is the one who is the fulfiller and the keeper of all of these things. And then that then uh, unleashes and empowers and points us. We can be the ones who receive all of these things. And the story of our life is not that we accomplish all of these things or we produce them or we do them in other people's lives. It's that we receive all of them. And so now by the promise of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we can experience new life. We can experience in His presence the new life that comes from him. And number two, we can experience what life to, what it's like to be delivered from the curse of evil. We can have all of the, the bondage and brokenness that can, that can weigh us down. We can be set free from those. And you know what it's like to experience real true freedom. Even from things like we have already sung this morning. Like I'm no longer a slave to fear. The, the tyranny of fear can be broken and he can set us free. We can have real hope. We can have real joy. You know, it's like in his presence, the way sin has stained even our joy. I heard a remarkable testimony a couple months ago. Someone was talking about how um, the way the gospel transformed their life. And they said, it was the first time I'd ever really experienced clean laughter. I had all this laughter in my life, but I just knew there was something that wasn't quite clean. And here's this clean laughter that's just joy. In Psalm 16, you have made known to us the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. These can be ours as the curse of sin is broken. That's why Paul rejoices. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. It's this power that can set people free. And then we can share in this incredible, joyful life with all of the redeemed people all over the world. So if you're a Christian, now you're a part of a worldwide family that's unlike any other entity on the planet. You know, one of the things in our community, and I don't have time to go down this rabbit trail, but one of the things, we love diversity. But there is no true diversity quite like the Christian church. There is no entity like it on the planet. Every other major religion thrives in the location of its origin. This is the only religion that thrives as it expands out from the location of its origin. And you don't have to recreate the conditions of its origination to have that thriving. It's it's unlike anything else in the world. In the 21st century, it's it's the only truly global entity. It's this worldwide family. Look, number four, what we receive is we receive rescue through his sacrifice. Now we can enter into his presence through the blood of the Lamb. And then Paul rejoices in Ephesians three. We now have boldness and access to come to the throne of grace. And then, number five, he will send his king, and under his reign, we all can thrive. And it's so important for us to realize that it's obedience that brings life. One of the things we say at our house is obey the first time with a happy heart. So it's not good enough just to obey. You have to obey with a happy heart because it's obedience that brings life. It brings joy. And underneath this rain empowered by the spirit, it's obedience to him that brings life. And then ultimately this new life comes because we are new creation. And the old is gone. And the new has come. So this is the story. This is a whistle-stop tour of God's plan as he's working the renewal and the restoration of all things. And as you look at that, it's just worth thinking about. There's, there's no story you can try and craft for your life that's better than the one God's already working in history. So the story of you getting to the top of your class is not better than God renewing and redeeming all things. The story of you being personally satisfied and successful is not better than the story of him renewing and redeeming all things. So at the beginning, I was kind of teasing the girls and saying, remember, boys ruin everything. And I'm just kidding, boys. I love you. I'm one of you. And it's not really boys that ruin everything. The theological reality is not boys that ruin everything. It's sin that ruins everything. And it's in you. And it's touched you. And that's what's going to ruin everything. So now the question is, how can this story become my story? How can I be broken free from my obsessive self-centeredness where I constantly think that I'm at the center of the world's doings? How can I get in line with the right plot? I think one of the first things you have to do is you have to come. Come to him believing. Do you believe that he is who he said he is? Do you believe that God made these promises and that Christ fulfills them? Do you believe that he lived and he died for your sins and that his death and resurrection is your only hope? You know, when you look at the cross, do you see a picture of where your sin leads and what your sin deserves? And then do you see a picture of his grace and his glory? Do you believe that salvation is found in no other name? Because there's no other name under heaven and earth that's given by which we must be saved It means believing these things it also means trusting in these things Trusting in him with all your heart Joyfully removing yourself from the center of life and placing him at the center You know i'm amazed by This epistle because paul was a man who had ambitions And his whole life was dedicated to planting churches and preaching the gospel to the end of the earth That was his earthly ambition, and from an earthly standpoint, he fails because he doesn't make it. He wants to go to Spain. He doesn't make it, and the reason he doesn't make it is because he's in a prison right now, and he's still writing this, but what's so amazing, he writes this with such joy. Even though his life ambition is coming crumbling down, he's still happy because the location of his joy is not in his personal accomplishments. It's in knowing Christ. So in another prison epistle in Philippians, in the same cell, he can write that whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So the beautiful thing about this story is that he's actually, Christ is the main character. And you can lose everything, but if you gain him, you've lost nothing. And you can gain everything, but if you don't have him, you have nothing. And so as we pause now and pray, we want to thank him for these promises. And we want to seek them in our life. So Lord, we thank you for giving us these promises. We thank you that you promised in your presence is life. And now I ask that you would help us to believe that. We are surrounded by a whole just symphony of advertisements and different things that try and convince us that true life is found in so many different places. But help us to truly believe that in your presence is life. And we praise you that... Uh, by the power of your resurrected son, you have broken the curse and you can break every chain uh, that binds us. And I pray for anyone who's coming to here this morning and they know that they're, they're way down, they're bound, they need to be set free. We pray that you would do your awesome and mighty work setting them free. We thank you that you've blessed us to be a part of a worldwide global family. And we ask that you help us to realize that, to see that, to experience that, to embrace that. Thank you that our rescue comes through your sacrifice. It's by the blood of the lamb that we find life. Thank you for sending your king to send his word and his commands to to lead us. We confess that we so often are like sheep who've gone astray, we've turned our own way, and we ask that your king would lead us and guide us And we praise you that ultimately you bring life, bring death, bring life out of death. And you bring new life out of the grave. And we pray that that would happen in us and around us, for us and through us. Know this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.